Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Mike Brown. He's the Director of Defense Innovation Unit, the DIU, a defense department organization that focuses on leveraging innovative commercial technology for the military. He was also the White House Presidential Innovative Fellow, and he previously served as the CEO of Semantic and CEO of Quantum Corporation. Wow, that's a serious resume. Michael, welcome to World of Tabs. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to the conversation today. I don't think a lot of people outside of the small niche have heard of DIU. It is kind of an interesting and also a little bit of a weird organization. Give us a sense of just what's so weird about it, weird in a good way, and (laughs) why is this organization's mission so important? The Defense Innovation Unit, I would use the word, was set up to basically accelerate the adoption of commercial technology. So I don't know if weird is the word I would use, but it's different from what the Defense Department has traditionally done in acquiring capability. So if you think about it, over most of the Pentagon's history, a lot of the technology that the Pentagon uses has been developed by the Defense Department. But increasingly, as we look forward, more and more of that technology is developed on the outside. It's not really even purely defense technology. It's what we call dual use, meaning used in the commercial world and used in the defense world. Like a vision recognition software or something like like that. Exactly, like applications of artificial intelligence or cyber tools, autonomous systems. These things are being developed in the commercial market. Or even I assume like logistics would be something that would be very similar in both or something. Exactly right. There are plenty of important technologies used by the logistics industry, a UPS or a FedEx that can equally be applied to the Defense Department. So we need to be reaching for those and figuring out how we adopt those rather than recreating the wheel. And that's a bit different than where the Defense Department was 50 years ago when we were developing more of the technology we use inside. And then the goal here also with DIU is to be able to acquire this technology in a relatively efficient way because obviously we all, I think the entire public knows that when government procures things, it is a long process. And here the idea is to shortcut that process. So again, I wouldn't say shortcut, but your point about how can we be efficient, how can we go faster is the name of the game. We want to encourage more vendors to want to work with the Department of Defense, make that a little bit less mysterious so they wouldn't have to have a full-time federal systems employee on board to sell to the federal government. Yeah, we want to put companies on contract in 60 to 90 days and get them a production contract as soon as the testing is done to show the solution works in a military environment. So we've done that for about 50 different capabilities at this point. We've introduced 100 new vendors, and about 40% of those are first-time vendors to DOD. Oh, wow. Okay, interesting. So we're showing it can be done. You don't have to use what has traditionally been a slower process, the federal acquisition regulations. In fact, we use a different acquisition authority. It has the unsexy name of Other Transaction Authority. (laughs) It's not new. It was given to NASA in 1958 as a response to the Sputnik launch. So it's not a new authorization, but it's one that was more recently given to the Defense Department. Now, how is DIU set up? I mean, you're a civilian. You came in and you're just completing your four-year term right now, leading the organization. How does it work? You were actually a Defense Department employee during that time, or how does that work? That's how it works. We're doing something that's, again, unusual. 
for the Defense Department. We're blending active duty military, civilian workforce, so folks who have commercial technology experience like myself, but no military background, and also a large group of reservists. So reservists are those folks who have served in the military and have another full-time job. And the way they are reserve capacity is they're providing some time to military service, which is typically a few weekends that they're providing and one month a year. So this could be like a reservist who's like a product manager at Google. And then in their weekend time, they work at DIU or something like that. That's right. So we have about 200 employees at DIU and 55 of those are reservists. Interesting. And it's also cross, right? There's Navy and Army and Air Force, and it's kind of a cross group. Every service branch is represented, including Marines and Space Force at DIU. And we typically reflect that in our reservist pool as well. And that includes even an organization outside of DOD, the Coast Guard, which reports to Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, so a true blended workforce. And I'd say from a cultural standpoint, we're really trying to operate DIU more like a tech company than we are as a military unit. Now, we are reporting to the Department of Defense. Make no mistake about it. That determines what we work on. But maybe you have fewer ties or something like that? Well, certainly fewer ties, but also those who are active duty military are not in uniform, and we don't use their rank when we're referring to each other because we're trying to encourage open communication kind of a meritocracy of the best ideas coming forward and certainly contributing no matter what your rank is in any conversation. So to the maximum extent, we're trying to operate like a tech company and move fast and have a lot of communication up and down. And I know you've spoken a bit in the past about the lack of consensus among Pentagon leaders on DIU's mission. I think at one point the agency took like a big funding cut from 2021 to 2022. How do you think about, is there a communication piece where you have to also communicate to your like core, in some ways they're like your LPs or your investors. If you think of a startup, they're like your series B investors or something like that. Like, how do you think about the broader Pentagon? So the LPs would be members of Congress. Okay, they good determine point. Yes. What the funding is. <laughs> we report to four different committees of Congress, House and Senate Armed Services Committee, and then the subcommittees on defense appropriations as part of the House and Senate Appropriations Committee. So that was a lot of folks to keep informed. But in addition, as you point out, our Defense Department leadership is critical. And so are investors and entrepreneurs that end up providing the solutions that we're then qualifying for the military. So we have a large group of stakeholders. So it's important to make sure that folks do understand what we're doing. To the point you raised, I wouldn't say so much that the department was confused about what our mission was. But as with all groups that are trying to grow within the Defense Department, resources are a challenge because Congress sets those in total. And now you've got to fight for an allocation of those resources. So the budget cut you referred to actually is a result of the long time it takes to get a budget approved rather than someone saying, let's cut DIU's budget. I think the value we're providing is widely recognized, but it takes two and a half years for $1 of spending to be programmed by the Department of Defense. It's a very uncompetitive process relative to the adversaries we compete with. For those of us who come from the business world, as I do, it's just an anathema to be able to go fast. It's the farthest thing from agile, and the whole process takes too long. So there is some work being done now. There's a commission that Congress has formed to look at the whole budgeting process 
It's called the PPB&E Commission, which stands for Planning, Programming, Budget, and Execution. So it's looking at a whole process that was created back in the McNamara era. So back in the 1960s that the Pentagon still uses, and it's not what we need today to go faster. So back to the budget cut, Congress gave us a great appropriation in fiscal year 21. We're now operating in government fiscal year 22. And by the time we got that, because Congress didn't do their work on time, we operated for six months in what the government calls a continuing resolution. That allows you to go forward and spend some money, but not at the new budget level. You're operating on a percentage of what budget was approved last year. That in itself creates a whole lot of inefficiencies, which have been widely reported. We can talk about it if you want. But so you don't know what your budget's going to be for the current year you're operating in up until maybe six months into the current year. Okay, then the budget comes. By that point, because the budget process takes so long, the budget for FY22, the following year, was already on its way to the Hill, had already been approved by the Pentagon, Office of Management and Budget, which is really the CFO for the president. And the president sends it over to Congress. So we had no time for the administration executive branch to represent the increases that Congress had just given us in the budget that was on the Hill. So that's what resulted in the budget cut. Got it. Interesting. From someone who's outside of government, this does seem like crazy. It's just a lot of work. And I mean, we're talking, obviously, the budget is trillions of dollars and you want it to be spent in the right way and accountability and don't want it to go to waste and stuff. But at the same time, at least from an outsider's perspective, it doesn't seem like all these roadblocks stop the waste. They just slow everything down. Is there some sort of simple cure if you were king for a day that we could do? Or is it just like there's nothing simple about this? I've already recommended, I presented to the PPB&E Commission already, and my ideas really were borrowed from the corporate world. So if I told board of directors and I'm CEO of a company that, gee, we're going to put a budget together three years in advance, and I'm not going to change any line items. We're just going to go forward and spend it. The board would look at me like I was crazy. Then they would fire me. (laughs) So we need to take a lesson from the corporate world. The whole process should be a year. That's important. Then you figure out, what do I have to do to make that happen? And the whole process, meaning the Defense Department putting the budget together, OMB looking at it, the president submitting it to Congress, and Congress approving it. Now, you can't do that the current way we develop the process, which is thousands of line items. You have to aggregate to a higher level, again, borrowing from the corporate world. So the CEO would never submit to the board a budget that had thousands of line items and say, would you please look at this and tell me on every line item what I should do? No, there has to be some trust and some delegation of authority. Fine for the transparency. So we're not trying to prevent anyone from looking at any line item. But you can't do it at a fine level of granularity and get speed. There has to be some agility to the process, some trust, and then allowing Defense Department leaders to make the big trade-offs of what do I need to spend on, rather than saying, no, that can't be touched. So in a sense, you have senior Defense Department leaders, heads of the Air Force or Navy, who cannot make a decision about what ships or what fields am I, or what airplanes am I fielding. Congress is doing that. So you sometimes this is why you see the military ready to retire some military gear and Congress saying, no, you must produce that. And that's typically about jobs and districts. It's not about the Congress making a informed decision about what are the right military trade-offs. It's about, no, I don't want to lose that contract. That's so many jobs in my district. Well, that's not an appropriate well, way. Well, it is hard. To- I mean, when you have a 
company, even a large company, maybe have a very big board of directors of 17 people or something like that, which is probably already incredibly unwieldy. And then Congress, I mean, with the Senate, you're talking about over 500 people. It does seem like it's very difficult. And each one of them has quite a bit of power to hold things up, et cetera. I mean, I guess that is somewhat what you would expect in a democracy. It is going to be a little bit messy, too. And if you think about it, for very large programs like the F-35 or an aircraft carrier, taking that amount of time because the lifetime of a program is measured in decades, I'd argue it needs to be reformed for even those large programs. But those are pretty stable. There's a question about how many of the F-35s I'm going to buy, but you know that's going to be around a long time. When we're talking about the type of technology that DIU is introducing, small drones, cyber tools... AI software, helmets, things that do not have a long tail of sustainment, meaning you're going to buy and replace, more like consumer goods. Those we need to be moving quicker on, or you're only fielding old technology, which is not good for our warfighters. So we want to give them the latest technology. We have to move quicker because the product cycle of some tech companies is within a budget cycle of the Defense Department, meaning new products will come Within that cycle, I couldn't possibly have specified that I wanted to buy them so that we can't address emerging threats. We can't leverage new opportunities from a technology standpoint with a process that takes so long and is not agile enough to say, oh, now I see there's a new solution that would better meet that problem. I want to go get that process we have doesn't allow that. There's also a use it or lose it for most of these budget cycles as well, which is a little bit Another of a perverse. Problem. Yeah. There's an incentive to spend what you have been appropriated so that you get that or a higher level of appropriation the following year. That encourages waste. So there really ought to be a benefit so that if I save money because I went to the commercial market and I bought something that was better, cheaper, faster, why can't I keep some of those dollars? Today's incentive wouldn't exist because if I save money, that money goes back to the treasury. That's a good thing for all Americans. But Better if the unit that is saving the money gets to keep at least some portion of that. And now I've got a built-in incentive to do that on an ongoing basis because my own unit's going to benefit. Interesting. When you think about the perspective of a technology company, a Series A, Series B technology company selling into the government, how do you think about it from their perspective? How should they be looking at it? I can tell you one thing that I know from most of the companies that I work with is this idea that everything is secret in government is difficult <laughs> for them. And so many of these guys don't have a clearance and just the process of getting a clearance is very, very difficult. And then even when you get a clearance, you find out ultimately for most of the things that you're talking about, you don't actually really, they're not really secrets. You don't really need a clearance for, I'm sure there are some very operational things that you might but usually when you get a clearance, you're not even in the need to know on most of those things. So you're just talking in generalities anyway. How do we fix some of those things? Yeah, so I think it's pretty daunting if you're a young company without a lot of resources and you have a premium on time and you're watching your cash flow carefully to think about selling to the federal government. That's why DIU was created. How can we make that easier? How can we go faster? Because if we can give a company an answer on whether they're going to get a contract in 30, 60, or 90 days, then they're going to be more likely to put their hat in the ring and say, well, let's go for that. Let's see if we can get that award. So we're trying to make that process easier, faster, and more efficient for small companies to apply. So I would tell a young, innovative company, if you can get on a DIU contract because you can solve a problem that we're 
asking for help on, that can be your ticket to getting into the federal government. I would advise if I were an investor, if you can't work with a DIU, and there are a couple of other innovation organizations helping services like AFWorks, Army Applications Lab, if you can't use one of those, you probably should wait until you're a more mature company to approach Defense Department business, because it's going to be a much longer cycle, much less certain, and it's not going to be efficient from a resource standpoint. So I think there's kind of a dividing line for those companies. You can either work with one of us who are trying to make that process easier for small companies, or maybe it'd be better to wait until you're a large company. To your point about classification, you're spot on, and this has been widely discussed as well, that we overclassify things in the government. And so what we do is not work initially with those more secret type of project. Almost all of what we do is unclassified. And if we're going to work on a classified problem, we do the translation to make it unclassified so that we can work with vendors who don't have facility clearances or people who are cleared. So for example, the application might be classified, but the general problem is not. Most things that we do in the military, you could say, well, we need to think about those as unique because in the end, they often have a kinetic effect or basically we're blowing something up. But most of the problems that we're tackling in the Defense Department have to do with very commercially oriented tasks like we need to field sensors. We need to know what's going on. We need to analyze the data from those sensors. We need to optimize the decision from those, and we need to communicate out to a very distributed workforce. Those are all commercially oriented problems. So the end result of where in the world we're operating, exactly what kinetic effect we're delivering could be classified, but everything else along that chain is not. So that's an example of how we can work along that chain to solve problems the military would have, but have those be completely unclassified. And I'd say 90% of the work we do at DIU is unclassified. What if the things that is interesting, I know that you're based in Silicon Valley, is that in many of the large tech companies in Silicon Valley, it might be a minority, but it's a significant loud minority of their employees that does not want them to work with the Defense Department and often makes loud noises when they do work with Defense Department. And obviously, we want the Googles, the Apples, the Microsofts, the Amazons of the world they have a lot of innovations and they have a lot of heft. We want them selling into the government and not just the big defense contractors like the Northrop Grumman's and stuff like that of the world. Is there any way that we as a, we meaning, let's say the defense department can work with these companies to help them? Obviously dollars are important, but are there other ways for them to win the PR war internally with their own employees? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important for the military to ensure that more of the public understands the incredible variety of missions that we're performing. So it's everything from ensuring that we've got integrity of the systems in space that really run our world today. If we don't have GPS, GPS, our ATMs don't work. So the military is supporting that system basically as a free service for the U.S. population and much of the world. The military is often doing flights to understand weather better. You know, it's our military that goes up to understand how powerful a hurricane is. Humanitarian assistance, disaster recovery, the military is the first on the ground in another country or in our own country through the National Guard after a flood or a fire. We're providing some of the tools at DIU that help those first responders with what infrastructure might be damaged. We used satellite imagery, which the military is buying from commercial sources now. Satellite imagery to 
crowdsource algorithms to say, okay, what infrastructure is going to be damaged after a California wildfire or after a hurricane somewhere on the east or Gulf Coast? And we're able to understand, based on the level of the disaster, what infrastructure is damaged so we can help those first responders actually know which bridges might be out, which buildings might be destroyed in a fire that helps them do their job. There's just an incredible variety. I could go on and on about what the military is doing. As an example, you know, military through DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, funded the work on vaccines. The new vaccine that was used here, mRNA, it's called, was a military project. And then the military got involved on what do we do logistically to make sure we can ramp up those vaccines. Just an incredible variety of things the military does for the country. It's not all about we're sending a drone in to shoot someone. That's part of our mission as an American. I'm glad we have that mission. I'm glad we're not sending hundreds of troops in when a drone could do the job. But I recognize that the closer you get to what we call the kinetic effects, where somebody's being taken out, something's being blown up, the more controversial it becomes. But I think the first step is understanding how broad the mission is and how much we all benefit from having a strong military. What we found is actually the opposite of what you said, Oren, that there aren't many companies who don't want to support the military. If I break the companies that we work with into three categories, the first category would be those whose business naturally has the government as a big customer, a satellite customer, a rocket launch company. These companies know that a big part of their business is going to come from the federal government. So typically, those employees have already made a decision, I want to support the military before they walk in the door for the first time. So definitely not an issue with those type of companies that we're working with. Second would be the companies that don't need the military as a customer. Think about an AI company or a company doing a cyber tool. They could operate very well without ever reaching the military. Yeah, military might be 10 or 15% of the revenue. It's That's not going right. to be 70, right. 80%. The smaller the company, and we're trying to reach more innovative, non-traditional suppliers to the Defense Department, they are typically more worried about their company success than they are making a decision through employees about who could be a potential customer, meaning it's very important to have the company be successful, get to the next financing milestone. We find companies in that category definitely want to work with us if we can show them a quick path, an easy path to get to Defense Department revenue. So back to what is our process and how can we be different than working with a traditional military customer using the federal acquisition regulations and taking a long time. The third category is really the one you talked about, large multinationals. So that would be an example, Google, that some employees got organized and were concerned about what was called Project Maven, which was a way to use machine learning and recognition. I won't call it facial recognition, but it's similar. It's really trying to understand machine vision. So I can understand what the pixels are telling me when I get a satellite image as an example. So this one, I think, also could have benefited from some explanation. We want our analysts to be working with the best tools possible. Why should we have people spending hundreds of hours pouring over pixels trying to make a determination of whether that was a terrorist or not? I want the best tools available so that our analysts can be used in an effective way. I wouldn't want everyone in the military working with pencil and paper instead of computers. In this case, I think Google would admit that their employees got organized faster than the company did. Google has more veterans and family members of veterans by far than the number of employees who got organized to start protesting that. Google has since made it very clear that they want to support the military through their leadership. And then immediately after that happened, Microsoft and Amazon came out at the time, Jeff Bezos and Satya Nadella saying, 
employees, your opportunity to exercise your opinion is at the polls. That's why we're in a democracy and we're going to support the Defense Department business. We're not going to crowdsource our business strategy to employees. That's management's call. So I very much appreciated their very strong support for Defense Department. So if you start to break up the different categories of types of business and then what the Defense Department could be doing a better job of explaining the very varied missions that we have, I think we could have done a better job during that period. But we find many, many companies want to work with DIU and seek Defense Department business. On average, when we put out a problem, 43 companies come out per project submitting saying we want to work with you. How do you think about infiltration in some of these large tech companies from foreign actors, whether it's Google or Apple or Amazon, every single one probably has every major spy agency has employees at that company somewhere. And every six months, there's some article about a spy at Twitter or something like that that gets prosecuted. How worried are you about that? Or is it just something that you think is a bit overblown? Or is it something we should be like actually worried and trying to root out? No, it's very real. I'd say about 10% of the time when we're looking at potential vendors, we have to rule out the company because we found foreign influence at a level that makes us uncomfortable. We're definitely looking for both foreign ownership. So that would be part of our screening process. If a company's substantially owned by the Chinese, that's a vendor we're not going to do business with. Or if there are principles that we can show, have a connection to the Communist Party, we're not going to do business with them. And there, as I just mentioned, it's an appreciable number. It's not certainly not the majority, but it's not insignificant. A company like Google, I mean, every intelligence agency, even from our friends, whether it's be the UK or France or Israel, but also some of our not friends, they have employees working there that are spies from the country. They might not be at a high level. They might be a customer support agent or something like that. So it's inevitable that they'll have some people. It's a very good target to be at. And they might be just doing some things like causing some unrest or doing some things on internal message boards or something like that. But they might be doing things that are actually more nefarious. Is that something that we want to help these companies root out? Or is it just like the cost of being a global company and we just have to deal with it? We do and have concerns and have helped companies with what's what you're referring to as an insider threat for industrial espionage. It's very real. It's not something that's theoretical. If we see any evidence of that or just in general can give companies some tools to help them look at that. The FBI has been very involved here in providing some help. That's not something that's part of DIU's mission, but we can connect them with the right part of the government that can help with the tools some techniques for companies to do a better job there. So DIU's concern would be introducing a new vendor Smaller to the company. Defense Department yep. that is controlled by China or Russia, or who would have employees at a senior level who would be providing information about how the military is using their solution yep. to a foreign adversary. So that's where we would be concerned. But there are other industrial espionage concerns that the company might have that we would certainly be interested in helping them with. Now, some of these companies that an organization like DIU would be a big proponent of, they're basically dealing with things that could be like off the shelf. And to me, there's all these different laboratories of off the shelf, maybe kinetic conflicts that have been happening over the last few years that we can learn from, whether it was a few years ago with Yemen or 
Azerbaijan and Armenia or the current conflict with Ukraine and Russia, and you can go on and on. How do we learn from these other conflicts that are happening and not just like planning for the F-35 great power conflicts that could potentially exist? So, Arne, what you're pointing out is the fact that more and more commercial technology is being used in warfare. So I'd say never have commercial technologies played such an important role. Ukraine uses an example. I mean, think about this one company, SpaceX, through its Starlink constellation of satellites, was called on to support Ukraine. When before can you remember when a country would have called on one company and an individual to supply the technology that would help them defend their country? That speaks volumes to me about how important commercial technology is going to be for the future. That's why I feel so passionate that we have to make sure that the mission of DIU, which is really accelerating this adoption of commercial technology, is used by the U.S. military. We need to make sure our own military has the latest in tools, and we got to recognize that because it's commercial, other countries, and in cases our adversaries are going to have access to this commercial technology as well. So it's AI software, cyber tools, autonomous systems, just a variety of technology can be used. Out. Digital wearables is another interesting commercial technology. So I'm wearing a or a ring and a Garmin watch. Since it's a podcast, you can't see that probably, but these are providing 160 data points on me as an individual that allow me to assess my own readiness. I can tell whether I'm coming down with an infectious disease up to 72 hours in advance with 80% accuracy. Think how important that is for understanding whether somebody has COVID or something oh, yeah. else before they go out on an aircraft carrier and infect the rest of the crew. So these technologies that come from the commercial world, incredibly important for war fighting. We're learning a lot about that in Ukraine, whether it's secure communications, the Russian generals who foolishly used their cell phone and didn't realize that was a geolocating device. So it's use of commercial technology in a war fighting zone that can get you into trouble or using them that actually support the national defense, whether it's the commercial satellite imagery, the communications capability that we just talked about through Starlink that's going to be very important that we keep up to date for the future. Another quick example. So DIU started working five years ago with satellite providers that give us radar images. So it's called SAR, Synthetic Aperture Radar. That allows you to go beyond what traditional satellites have done, which are using sophisticated cameras to give us pictures. So these radar images can see through clouds and see at night because it's not camera-based. That allowed us to get closer to real-time situational awareness of what the Russians were doing to amass troops on their border. And then it allowed us, once they had crossed the border, to see where the truck convoys were. We could follow the progress from space-based sensors of where is that truck convoy, how far out of Kiev is it installed. That's pretty important information for the Ukrainians to defend themselves. Or what's happening in eastern Ukraine today, where are the troop movements that was just reported in the press this weekend as important for the counteroffensive that's going on right now. So the ability to sense better what's happening in the world, which largely comes from commercial satellites, is going to be incredibly important for any warfighting situation in the future. You mentioned GPS out there. GPS is pretty easy to hack or to spoof or all these other things. But to the best of my knowledge, or even shut down, there hasn't been a lot of hacking or spoofing or shutting down of GPS in Ukraine. And you would think that would be something that the Russians would want to do. What's your theory about why they haven't done some of these things? Well, they actually have. So we have a project underway at DIU that looks at GPS spoofing. There's quite a bit of it 
that goes on around the world. And some of the situations are widely reported, but we found quite a bit of it happening in the Black Sea, Russian vessels that they don't want anyone else to know what their location is. So you're right, it's pretty easy to spoof. We're creating a map, a global map of where the spoofing is occurring. Where does it occur on a regular basis? That's pretty important for our military to know. We're also working on technologies that allow you to operate in a GPS-denied environment. One of the things we know we're going to face from a major power in a conflict is that GPS may be denied from a variety of different ways, either spoofing or it's widely reported that you can take out a satellite. So we're working on what are the technologies using quantum sensing, so quantum technology, but applied to sensing, not to computing, that will allow you to get a much more accurate picture of where you are relative to where you started than what we've had before. If you go oh, back that's to that, super cool. Yeah, if you go back to the old sailing days of dead reckoning when I didn't have <laughs> GPS, uh, that's not very accurate. So we're working on the sets of technologies that will allow for more accurate positioning of everything we have in the military. Now, I imagine on like a battlefield or something like that, that you can't rely on good high bandwidth Wi-Fi or something so that a lot of the compute has to be done locally. And so you've got these chips that I assume have to process these things in a more distributed way. And you can't necessarily bring it all into the cloud, whether it's images or other types of things. And then I assume if you're having chips that are processing something locally, they have to be hardened in some way. So if these chips get captured, you can't get the information. Is that something that we think about a lot or? Oh, absolutely. So there's a variety of military use cases that basically require integrity of the data. And we're moving much closer to zero trust concepts in the Defense Department. So meaning I can't necessarily trust all of the information I'm getting. I have to assume I've been hacked or compromised. Now, how am I going to think about the information that's coming to me? So that's zero trust. And then I got to make sure I got resiliency. So I might be operating in a situation where I don't have all the bandwidth I'd like. Key nodes have been taken out. So how do I operate in those environments? So we're working at DAU on projects that allow for that, both on land, at sea, and in space. One of the things you mentioned hacking, one of the things in hacking historically has been, you don't want to hack to go get some information. It could be proprietary information or something, but I'm trying to get some information. To me, the more worrisome hacking in military is that I'm going to change what you see. And since so much of what we do today is in front of a screen, we're looking at a screen in those Mission Impossible movies where they change the video format quickly and all of a sudden, that to me is something I'd be really worried about. I imagine that is front and center worry for the Defense Department as well. It absolutely is. Everything from changing the information to changing the AI algorithms that could be used. All technology can be used for good or for evil. So we have to be aware of that ensure we've got the right safeguards. That's why resiliency is important. Concepts like zero trust, because if I've got multiple sources of information, now I'm able to say, okay, this is bad. This is corrupted for some reason, but I have these alternative sources of information. And if I assume I've been hacked, that allows me to basically start thinking about what sources are the most reliable? What do I trust? What do I not trust? There's ways that we're dealing with that. Now, in government, often... There are these civilians that come in usually that are political appointees or appointed by the president and they serve for a period of a few years or something like that. And then they go back to doing what they're 
going to do. In your case, you weren't a political appointee and then you kind of serve for a few years and then leave. And that to me does seem a little bit odd in the Defense Department. I don't know enough about the Defense Department, but I don't know that there's a lot of senior people that come in for a limited amount of time that are not current military and then go off and do their thing. Is this something like we can export both to other defense institutions and maybe even to other government institutions? Well, there are a lot of civilians that work at the military. Sure. Or work at the, but at, they're, their the career, they're not necessarily like just coming in and out for a term you, or something like that. In a you, very actually have, role. you actually have both the types. Oh, okay. So the status that I'm in is called a headquarters expert. So you can bring in a person that has specific expertise, in my case, tech commercial expertise. And my term was for up to five years. But you're right. The most senior positions in the government defense or other agencies are the political appointees who would come in at the secretary, you know, that's what a cabinet position is, or undersecretary position. So my time at the Defense Innovation Unit, I've always reported to a politically appointed leader. Today, that's the undersecretary of defense for research and engineering. So a political but appointee. I guess what I'm saying is, I assume you're, let's say, equivalent to a two or three star that's general right. or something like that. That's exactly um, right. And then you came in, but you didn't kind of rise through the ranks and go major, lieutenant colonel, colonel, like Correct. a typical yeah. person that did that. You came in, you came in for a brief period of time for a very, very specific mission, which you had specific expertise on that maybe somebody internally wasn't able to do. To me, that's very interesting. And a company would do that. A company would bring in, I need a general counsel or CFO, and they find someone and they bring them in. And is that happening at a decent amount? And is that something that we could do more of in government? I think we can do more of it, but it's happening at a decent amount. That, that's okay. not unusual to have a civilian leader, not politically appointed for various organizations within the Pentagon. So another example, Ash Carter started, in addition to the Defense Innovation Unit, the Defense Digital Service. So this is a basically defense-only software factory. And that's been led by civilians who have experience developing software. Or there's another organization that he formed, the Strategic Capabilities Office. How can we combine technologies that we already have, often military, so DIU's exclusively commercial, but how can we find military and sometimes commercial technologies in new ways? Think about what the Germans did with Blitzkrieg. There was no single new technology there, but the way they combined those in a warfighting concept to use troops on the ground with the Air Force was new at the time. So that office is being led by a civilian as well. So there's quite a few offices at the Pentagon with this type of model. Whenever I read anything about, let's say, even a past very successful victory or war that we fought, let's say World War II or something like that, it does seem like just the litany of mistakes that we've made is so monumental. And yet somehow we still kind of came up on top. Is that just because these conflicts are just so complex and we're dealing with humans that make lots of mistakes or we're also blessed to be in a good position in this world and we can make more mistakes than our adversaries? Or how do you think about this? You see different types of military conflict. I mean, if you look at the first Gulf War, it was an unbelievable success. We fought the sixth largest army in the world, the Iraqis. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but we're in Baghdad in a series of days and very few casualties. So there are examples. And I think that was enabled by technology where we've had phenomenal level of success with 
very few, if any, mistakes. Yes. And in that case, diplomacy as well, where we're basically able to get the entire world to help us, which is a, a very partners, rare case. Yeah. Allies and, and partners are yeah. our asymmetric advantage. So we have that going for us, and China and Russia do not have that going for them. That's key as well. But where is chaos? If you talk to the military, they'll say, the plan never survives first contact with the enemy. You're always yeah. improvising. So it's complex. It's chaotic. So yeah, mistakes are made. We just have to make sure that we have the best equipped military going into any conflict. And to me, a key part of that is making sure we're giving the best tools to the warfighter. That's where DIU comes in. How do we get the best of the commercial world, all the innovation that's Silicon Valley, Boston? I mean, our innovation ecosystem is the envy of the world. We have to make sure that the best of that is provided to our military. Now, a couple of personal questions. You're known just historically in your companies as just a great manager. Are there non-obvious traits of being a great CEO? <laughs> They're probably pretty obvious. I think making sure that you are listening and taking in information and willing to change your mind, I would point to. Of course, any CEO or leader has to have a strong sense of their own agenda. What are you trying to accomplish? I had some very good advice given to me by a leader in government when I came in saying, you can't just come in and think you're going to do the job. You really have to think about what are you trying to accomplish? What is your agenda? What do you want to leave the organization with? Not just managing it during your tenure. I thought that was very good advice. A lot of things will get in your way to getting something done. So I think ensuring that you're a good listener, that you're willing to change your mind, being a good communicator, communication is important. And then setting some objectives for the organization. We set objectives on an annual basis and then see how we do and how can we improve that. I think those are all important ingredients in being a good leader. Just your background as CEO of these incredibly successful companies in Silicon Valley. To me, I want more people with your background to <laughs> come into government. And you're not coming in because the government salary is necessarily exciting for you. You're coming in because you want to give something back to society. Is there either a way to encourage more people to do that? Or can we have like a recruiting organization internally that goes out and finds people like you? Because I imagine there are a lot of people like you who would like to do it. Maybe you've not even been approached or even know it's possible to think about these things. Well, thanks, Aaron. Yeah, I think we would benefit by especially a more tech-savvy workforce, and that's not going to come from a training class, although that can help, but we need more cross-pollinization from government to business, and those of us who've done that know that really isn't easy. We tend to think about careers in a stovepipe fashion. How many CEOs at tech companies are encouraging their employees to go spend some time in the government, and vice versa? So, I think that we would benefit by thinking a little bit more about that. One thing the government would have to learn in doing that is any sense of recruiting. There's really no sense of, I've got to go out and get specific talent, and I should look for people that I want to bring in, that we have that well ingrained in us as leaders of private organizations, as companies. But the government doesn't do that at all. It's more of a gauntlet you need to run through and ensure you've got the patience and persistence to work through the government process to become hired is not friendly or encouraging. And the more senior you are, the less you had to deal in a system like that, because at more senior levels, companies are recruiting you specifically and take care of a lot of the administrative work in bringing someone on board. That's and how do we, it, like in the recruiting process, I know people who have kind of been offered government jobs, and then it can be a very long time, even between offer to start 
And there's a lot of different processes and stuff that, at least from the outside, do seem like they could be much, much faster. Is it just because we have like lack of will to make it happen? Or why do you think it is such a complicated process? Well, there's lack of will to change what is a frustratingly bureaucratic process, to give you an example. So we had tried to hire a Rhodes Scholar PhD in computer science from Stanford to join our artificial intelligence portfolio. Phenomenally qualified individual. Fortunately, he stuck through this with us, but it took us six months to go from deciding he was the right person to getting him an offer letter. So imagine in a private company, that would take 24, 48 hours to yeah. generate the offer letter. Yeah, so sometimes even like 20 minutes. Yeah. That process yeah. needs to be completely rethought. We're not in a world where talent is sitting on the sidelines waiting to get a government salary. It's quite the opposite, as you point out. It's the case where we should recognize that people have a lot of different opportunities and the most qualified talent doesn't need to sit around and wait for the government to decide. So yeah, that needs to be completely redesigned. Interesting. All right. Well, last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? I think there's this notion that as a leader, I need to be large and in charge, kind of like now hear this, I'm going to tell you what to do. And I think that is bad advice. I think more effective leaders are thoughtful, listening, recognize they don't know everything. It's a lot to learn. And the organization typically can provide you with good input on what needs to be done rather than you thinking about that when you're in the shower. So I think that large in charge, look decisive is very bad advice. You can be much more effective if you've incorporated what the organization knows into your thought process before you start speaking. From even this discussion, anyone who listens to this can see that you're a very, very thoughtful person, maybe a quiet leader. Is that something like you just had to learn along the way or were you always like that in your 20s? <laughs> I can't remember that far back to my 20s. So I, <laughs> I wouldn't have a good perspective on that. Probably part of my personality naturally, but over time that has been reinforced for me. Okay, got it. Because I imagine you could like learn some lessons along the way. Like, whoa, we've all, uh, we've all learned lessons so along the way. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Mike Brown, thank you very much. First of all, thank you for being at GIU for the last four years. We're excited to see what you do next. And thank you for being on World of DAS as well. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation, Oren. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.